All right, Hebrews chapter 12. I'll be preaching on verses 1 through 3, but mostly giving time to verses 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 12. After this, we'll jump into small groups and do some other stuff. But let me read this passage for us and I'll pray and we'll consider what the Lord has for us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's pray. Oh, Father, now we ask that you bless this time. Encourage these students, Lord. God, it's encouraging to my faith and to my heart to see them here with their Bibles open. So, Father, I pray that you would give them a faith that is grounded in your Son, Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I know it's been a long time, but we've been on a journey through Hebrews. But if you remember, when we first began Hebrews, some of the reasons why I thought it was important that we go through Hebrews. And there are a number of them, but one of them that I said is that it kind of sometimes seems we are living in a day and age where it is almost cool and popular to not have a conversion story. Conversion story meaning your story about how God has saved you and has brought you into the fold. But rather, with all of the social media and, as I mentioned during worship, the virtue signaling, it seems more popular and more cool to have a deconversion story about how, oh, I grew up in a church and they were all legalistic and narrow-minded and hated people who were either transgender or gay, and I have now come to see the light, and I am no longer a Christian, and those people look for the applause of other people, and a lot of times they get it. And it feels good to have this praise of men, and and so therefore, when we began looking at Hebrews, we talked about what is the deal with so many Christians, and especially like well, well-known well Christians, Christians who've written books, Christians who are, you know, worship leaders, pastors, and maybe not they might not have a deconversion story, but for whatever reason, they have fallen away from the faith. They don't endure, Right? And so the author of Hebrews is speaking into a situation very similar to that. You have people who their entire life, they're used to a religion that is more about the things that you can see. Judaism, like I mentioned before in other sermons, they had a big temple. They had 
customs and traditions and religious holidays. And, and again, if you were to go to Jerusalem and, and to see this temple and the choirs and the incense, it would have been this very inspirational and emotional experience that you would have. But now they become Christians. And instead of these big, grand religious experiences, you are being told to praise a crucified Messiah. That God became a man. That Jesus, just like us, gets splinters. And if he walks too much, he gets blisters on his feet. And if he eats a bad apple, that he has stomach issues. And there's a sense in which they wanted to believe this message, but the allure to just kind of go back to their old ways, to leave the faith, was strong. Because in Judaism, at least they had the world liking them. At least all of their friends could kind of tolerate that a little bit. And so the same thing is for us as it was for them. Because they love the praise of other men, they departed from Christ. And so the author of Hebrews, as we established a long time ago, is a pastor. And this epistle, he is preaching a sermon. And in this sermon, here is what he's trying to do. Again and again and again, show how Jesus is better. Jesus is better than any angels that Judaism can boast of. Jesus was better than any prophet like Moses. Jesus was better than all of the other people in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, he went on a long excursion talking about how pretty much everything in the Old Testament, guess what? Was just pointing to Christ. That Christ is the true Passover. That all of the stuff in the temple and everything, everything in the Old Testament was pointing towards Jesus. And so he is warning them again and again and again. Do not drift away from the safe harbor that is in Christ. And to do that, what does he need to do? He needs to help them have faith. Have faith to endure. Trust in the promises of God. Know that Christ is far better than anything you could choose to serve in this life. And by wanting to give them faith, he gives them a definition of faith. Do me a favor. Look at your Bibles, chapter 11, beginning of verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And so as a good pastor, he gives them the definition. That you need faith to endure. And here's what faith is. It's being confident and having a conviction that the things that are not seen are our ultimate hope. And to illustrate that, what does he do? He gives us person after person. And we spend a lot of time in Hebrews chapter 11. And I'm not going to reiterate everything that I've said. But as he just went through Abel and Moses... And all the different people like Noah and all of the other Old Testament people that he wasn't even able to kind of explain their stories. What was he doing? He was giving us examples 
people who have kind of blazed the trail for us. And so if you notice in chapter 11, it's all about all of these people in the Old Testament who have lived by faith. They were people who endured to the end, even with not even having the gospel and the full promises of God. What did they do? They trusted God. Even if people saw them in two, even if people threw them in prison, what did they do? They endured. And so he comes to the end of this great chapter in chapter 11. And, and I actually believe that verses 1 and 2 should belong in chapter 11. That they shouldn't have, when they, hundreds of years later, when they added the verses and the chapters, these two verses should belong in chapter 11. But you see in verse 12 right there, or chapter 12, verse 1, what does he say? Therefore. So in essence, what he's doing, he's looking back, all of these people, what's the big point? Why do I say all this? Therefore, what does he say? Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us. So what we're going to see here is that the author of Hebrews gives us two ways of living the Christian life. Two essential ingredients of being someone who is going to endure to the end. And before we get to those two things he tells us to do, I just want you to know that the Lord in his kindness has given us people who have gone before us, who have pushed against the fear of man, who have pushed against the, the, the love and the praise of other men, and they have followed God. And can I tell you something? This list has only grown as the church has gotten older. I mean, we could talk all day about the missionaries and the pastors and the, and the theologians and the, and the faithful moms and dads and grandparents who have faithfully loved Jesus. And what have they done for us? They've created an opportunity, a cloud of witness. Now, the idea of cloud of witness, have any of you ever done track? A few of you? I did track for one day. Um, like, yeah, this isn't for me. Imagine like a track meet, right? You have a bunch of people running in a circle, but you have the stands, right? And you have the people cheering you on. So imagine like the Olympics, and in essence, what, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that all of these people that he's mentioned, all of the Christians who have gone since then, they are all, in essence, cheering us on. They, they are sitting in the stands and saying, be faithful to Christ. He is better. And so we don't get to just get this kind of call to endure inside a vacuum. We get it in the great context of that God has always kept a remnant of people who are faithful to follow after him. So if you ever feel like you're alone, if you ever feel like it's too hard, we must remember that we have a cloud of witnesses. We have people who are cheering us on and who have blazed the path for us. And also, we should do the same. I can just move into application for a second. You, as a middle schooler or a high schooler, can also be a cloud of witness to how to faithfully love Christ at a young age. 
Do you realize you don't have to die to first be an example to other people of how to faithfully love and serve Jesus? That at some point in all of our Christian journeys, the conversation needs to not be so much what can you do for me, but how can I help others run the race towards the end? And so like I said, what the author of Hebrews does, because this great cloud of witness, he gives us two ways to live the Christian life in light of this great cloud of witness. And the first one is this, that we lay aside all sin. We lay aside all sin. Now, it's what's interesting about this passage is that the author portrays the Christian life like a marathon, okay? So the track analogy is coming back out again. So if you run the 400, okay? My math serves me correct. That is one lap around the track, okay? It's 400, 400 meters. It's America. We don't talk in meters, but anyways, 400 meters, okay? Now, typically, 400 meter, that's pretty quick. You know, I don't even know, like, was it like a, a minute they can run a 400 or something like that? Minute 05? Exactly a minute. Exactly a minute. There you go. That's going to be a sprint. You're not, you're not slowing down. You're, you're giving it your all an entire minute. You're not pacing yourself. You're just going for it. Now, here's the thing, though. A marathon is 26.2 miles. A lot of books for beginners will say how to run a marathon within in four hours. Four months to a four-hour marathon. Believe it or not, that was a book that I bought once. Kind of funny, right? <laughs> funny thinking that Aaron could run a marathon. The Christian life is not like the 400-meter run, but rather it's like the marathon in which we are being called to endure a much longer time. With a marathon, you have to pace yourself. Imagine a marathon runner who just starts off sprinting as hard as he can, just going for it, and he's looking back. Oh, I'm killing these chumps. Just running, run. How far is he going to make it? 400 meters, half a mile, right? And he's going to burn all his energy. Maybe he's ahead for a little bit. Eventually, though, what's going to happen? He's going to get past. And so the key to running and to living this endurance of the Christian life, the marathon, the first thing is this, that we lay aside all sin. Look what he says here in verse 1. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So in essence, what, what the picture that we're given here is that sin is like the thing that if you were to run a marathon and right before you started, I put a backpack on you and I grabbed a bunch of weights and I threw them in your backpack and I zipped it up and I added 70 pounds of weight to your marathon. Now again, you might make it a couple miles. You, you might, I, I could do this, you know, you're, you're, you're fresh, you're strong. But imagine carrying like a 70-pound person over your shoulder for 26 miles. 
eventually, what's what's going to do to you? Tire you out, slow you down. But even more than that, I think eventually, it's going to cause you to quit the race completely. What we're being told to do here is not this kind of like, hey, just make sure that you learn to not cuss. Make sure you do the right thing. The connection that he's making with chapter 11 and this point is simply this. That the sins that you are comfortable with, that if you continue to live with them and do not take them seriously, they will eventually disqualify you in running the race that is set before you. You guys, this is why every time when we open up the Word of God, there is always something for us to confess about. You know, even this, this evening, I was at prayer rally with Pastor Carl, and he mentioned a psalm. Um, I believe it was like Psalm 132. And it talked about, the psalmist said something about, my help is in the Lord. My help is in the Lord. Now, that's a great and encouraging verse, and I love it. But do you want to know something? When you are trying to live out what he is saying here in verse 1, every verse begins to become a way to confess sin. Here's how. Because the Lord should be my help. But if I'm really being honest, I don't often turn to the Lord for help. I try to do things on my own way. When I read in Galatians 5 of rather use your freedom in Christ to serve one another and not to bite and devour one another. I have to confess that sometimes with my Christian brothers and sisters, I at times gossip. I at times write people off in my mind that if someone is ever mean to me, my chances of kind of actually going out of my way to love them and to serve them go down. And the reality is this, every single one of you is going to be different. Every single one of you, I don't, I don't need to even talk to you to know this, but you have specific sins in your life that easily trip you up. There's, there's the struggles that we have, and I don't know if it's by nature or by nurture, but I, I know that we all have certain things that, yeah, this is something that always seems to get the best of me. But if you take that sin lightly, it is going to become a crushing weight on you. And eventually, you'll lose all endurance and all perseverance and run out of the energy for the race completely. And so this is why, guys, listen, we seek to show Christ and to preach Christ and to love Christ as a better way of sin. Because here's, here's, here's the point. I, I struggle. How, how do I make this point without coming across of like, just stop sinning? So let me give you an example here. Imagine you're in a dark garage. And in this dark garage, you're trying to find your way out. Trying to get back to my garage that enters into my laundry room and kitchen. Um, but imagine you're trying to make your way there. You're, you're disoriented. You can't see. But more than that, in your garage, there's sharp tools and 
um, broken glass and obstacles everywhere you go and you can't see a thing, right? You're disoriented. You don't know which way is up or down, right or left. But someone keeps yelling through the wall, hey, stop doing that. Go the other way. What are you doing? Go towards the door. What, are you stupid? Go towards the door. I can't freaking see anything. What do you need in that situation? You need light. And imagine someone just cracks the door open a tiny eighth of an inch and a little beam of light comes through. And what does it do? It reorients you. You know which way to go now. Maybe there's, some, there's still some darkness around there, but, but the more that person opens up the door, the more light comes through, the more you start seeing things. And the more light, the more light, the more light, you can walk in safety toward where you're supposed to go. That's a great example of our hearts. That we walk in darkness. And instead of telling someone, don't do this, do this. And even though at times we, we should give direction, what do people really need? They need the light of Christ. And if Christ is shining in your hearts, guess what? He will reorient your heart away from sin. And that's exactly why the author of Hebrews is a good pastor. Because the first point is this. Guys, lay aside the sin that so easily entangles. And I think for you guys this week, think about the sins that you so just easily jump into. And think of the ways in which you can kill it. But not only does he just tell you to not sin, how does he tell you not to do it? And that's the second point. The second point is this. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, first, he would have you know this. Look to Jesus just as the great cloud of witnesses did before you. You see, what's interesting about all these Old Testament characters is they never actually had a full theology or a full understanding of who Jesus was. They just had the promises. They had the promises that God would one day bring about a salvation for his people. Do me a favor, look at chapter 11 and verse 26. Talking about Moses, an interesting story here. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, do you think Moses actually knew who Jesus was going to be? No. But Moses knew that there was a promise. There was someone who's going to come after him to be the greatest prophet. And so just as all of these Old Testament saints looked forward to Christ, we are to do the same thing. Now, it's interesting. Like, I, I shouldn't take things at face value here. But when we tell people, look to Christ, look to Christ, that might be confusing to someone who's maybe not around church lingo a lot. You're like, 
do you want me to look at a statue of Jesus? I mean, do I just draw a picture of a stick man, put Jesus and look at him? Or is there a Jesus in this church? Like, like, what do you mean, look to Jesus? Look to Jesus. Now, I think clearly he's not actually talking about literal eyesight fixing on something. But looking to Christ, anytime you get the words, behold, look, see, in Scripture, it's kind of asking us to use our hearts of faith. To not necessarily envision a personal Jesus, which I think at times is fine, but really to look to the person and the work of Christ. Who is he? What did he do? Looking to Christ means that when I am struggling to endure, when I'm struggling with sin, when I'm discouraged in my faith, when I'm tempted to find more pleasure in the creation more than the creator, what should you do? Fix your eyes on Christ. A lot of times this means this, preaching the gospel to your heart. Telling your heart again, Jesus is far better than anything that I can run to comfort for. Which is why I love the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ is my greatest comfort. When you are discouraged, what should you do? Look to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus, at times was ridiculed, mocked, forsaken, rejected. Do you think Jesus and humanity, just like us, liked it when people said good things about him? Do you think it made him feel embarrassed or awkward when he had the whole religious Judaism system slander him? Even in the midst of all of his discouragement, of all of his friends departing him, what did he do? He endured. He was faithful. And that's why he's not being so tight with his understanding of look to Jesus. He actually gives us an, an example of this. Look at what he says in verse 2. Looking to Jesus, one, why? Because he is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Why should you look to Jesus? Well, one, because he is the champion and he is the author of your faith. He is the one who gives you faith. But more than this, look what he says. Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He endured. He endured the cross to a people who need endurance, who are tempted to continue on in their sin. What is the advice from this pastor? To look to the one who endured the cross. You see, we find our endurance not by looking to myself. You know, as much as your society would tell you, you're the little train that could, you know, the little choo-choo that could, you know, 
um, do it your way. You can do it. Just believe in yourself. You know, every superstar or person who ever makes it, you just got to trust in the process, trust in you. If you work hard, you get it. That is not the case for the Christian. On my own, I will fail every time, but I look to the one who endured. I look to Christ. And so for us, the only way we can endure is by constant faith in Christ. It is our union with him. It's, it's our very lifeblood. And so, guys, I, I just tell you, you know, in my own heart, there are a lot of days, especially in this last year, when I'm either feeling down or discouraged or how about this? How about this one? Just bored. Just bored. My temptation is to watch Netflix. And Netflix is fine in itself, but maybe too much Netflix. My temptation is to just entertain myself. Our natural bent isn't always to look to Jesus. And so the only way we can learn to endure and to kill this sin, which so easily entangles us, we need to know something about Jesus. So do me a favor, look down one more time with me at verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. A lot of people debate this, but what do you guys think that joy is in verse 2? Apparently Jesus, when he was on the cross, when he was headed to the cross, it wasn't all dread. As you're walking to your crucifixion, Jesus had joy. And I don't necessarily think it's one thing, the joy of pleasing and glorifying his father, that he is fulfilling the work that his father gave him. But what is that work that his father gave him? To provide redemption for sinners, for his people. In essence, this, guys, listen. Christ's joy here is, is you, it's me. That he may endure for us. That he may despise the shame of the cross so that none of us or anyone who would put faith in him would have to. You see, when you understand that Jesus is not simply a good example of how to endure, but he is your very endurance. When you understand that Jesus doesn't just give you warm, fuzzy feelings, but he demonstrates his love for you, you'll find that you are more gripped by a love and a grace that should lead to thankfulness and obedience. I think this is one of the greatest verses in the Bible, simply because it clearly shows us that we bring Jesus joy. We bring Jesus joy. And lastly, in verse 3, he kind of summarizes this, these two verses by saying this, Consider him, consider 
Jesus, why? Who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Do you understand the story of the gospel? That Christ left the glories of heaven to become an ordinary man, to suffer such hostility against sinners. Against, I mean, imagine Jesus being crucified. The very air that the Roman soldiers used to crucify Jesus was the air that he provided for them. And why did he do that? So that you would endure. So that you would not lose your perspective. That you would continue to be with these great cloud of witnesses, cheering on other believers to finish the race. Kill your sin. Live for the glory of God. And do this by looking to Christ. So as we close, just a question for all of you here. What is the perspective that you have when you feel tired, lacking endurance and perseverance, when you feel more apathetic in your faith? What is the perspective and the orientation of your heart when you feel far from the Lord? I think what this passage is telling us is this. And when you find yourself in a dark garage with obstacles and sins abounding, the only thing that could really help us is Christ, is looking to him and allowing his light by the Holy Spirit to help us to endure. Because this is why I'm so dogmatic, passionate, about this youth group being marked by a group that wants to lift up and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single time we, we sing or we read the Bible, we are eager to show how Jesus truly is the Lord and the Savior of our lives and of our church. And as we go on in this life, may we endure, not by our own strength, but by looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that you would give us eyes to be able to see and behold Christ. And Lord, we're mindful of just the many days, God, where we're tempted to have a perspective that is not looking to you. God, we'd rather look to our own strength. And God, we confess and we repent of that. But Lord, I pray that you'd help us, God, with the great cloud of witnesses behind us to live a life of holiness and righteousness, to throw off the sin that so easily entangles us, Lord, and help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Help us to love him more, to glorify him, to lift him up. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.